In the 9th century, Baghdad was the place to be. This was the political and military power center of the world, and at its heart sent the Caliph, who could dispatch his armies from Spain to the borders of India. This was also the seat of learning that featured the finest libraries, research centers, and philosophers in the entire world. But if you searched the city, you'd find something even more than this. At the heart of the city were huge markets. Products from all over the world were bought and sold. Silks from China, spices from India, timbers from Northern Europe, and gold. Gold in amazing quantities. Quantities never seen before. And this gold was at the heart of an economic system unparalleled in the world. Not just in Baghdad, but in Muslim cities throughout the empire. We've talked in this series about the political, military, scientific, social, and religious powers of this amazing empire. But there was yet another factor. This was the economic heartland of the world. And this economy fueled incredible growth, amazing production of works of art, of architecture, fueled research, fueled exploration, and was at the center of a trade network that stretched throughout the world. That's our subject today. We're going to talk about this amazing economic miracle, the economy of the great Muslim empire. So please stay tuned. Welcome back to the Golden Age of Islam podcast. And today, it's literally the Golden Age. That's what we're going to be talking about, gold. Where it came from, how they got it, how they produced it, and how this gold fueled an economic miracle, really, that changed the world. Now, we've talked in this series about the amazing military conquests of the Muslim Empire. We've talked about the powerful political system, the legal system, and of course the spread of the religion. And these things are all very important. But one of the key factors that allowed this empire to go from being, say, a passing thing like the Hunnish Empire to having a long-lasting impact on the world even today was its economy. The Muslim Empire was also the economic superpower of the world, and this helped to fuel much of the growth and the spread of Islam even after the empire stopped growing politically and militarily. In fact, the largest Muslim populations in the world today are in areas that were not conquered by military force, but were actually reached by Muslim traders. And so this is a very important aspect of the history of Islam that we want to look at in detail today. Now, I will confess right out, I am not an economic historian or an economist. This is not my area of specialty. And so I'll be relying heavily on the work of others. And particularly, I'm going to rely on the work of the late historian Maurice Lombard, a French historian from the famous Annal School of History, which is probably best known by its most shining member, Fernand Braudel, one of the most influential historians of the 20th century. Now, the Annal 
School of History is best known for its long-term approach. They look at major long-term shifts in human history, particularly the basic infrastructure of human society. So they are much more interested in, say, the invention of currency or writing systems or the printing press and gunpowder than they are in which king won a certain battle or who ascended to the throne in a certain year. And that's very important here today because what Lombard is looking at is the role of the Muslim empire as the central part of an economic system that stretches from Western Europe to Asia and from Russia down to Sub-Saharan Africa. And as you know by now, if you follow this podcast, we love the big picture here. And that's really what the Annals School does, is look at the big picture. Welcome back. Well, the Muslim Empire brought a rapid expansion of urban growth, and that might sound a little bit surprising for a movement that came from the deserts of Arabia. And we've talked so much about the influence of Bedouin culture. But the fact is that most of the areas that Islam conquered in that first century were places that already had strong urban traditions. Now, tradition is the key word here because many of those areas had fallen into disrepair and those cities were in ruins. But if we look at what becomes the Muslim Empire, starting from the West, North Africa and Spain, these had been important parts of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had an extensive and well-developed urban culture and transportation network. You know the old saying, all roads led to Rome. Well, at one time they did. But by the time of the 7th century, when the Muslim Empire conquered this area, uh, these roads weren't going anywhere. And it's very common to see in descriptions of this area at the time, we hear stories of formerly great cities that had fallen into ruins, great Roman villas which had become wrecks, and people actually living in villages, often of huts and tents, next to these great cities. So what we have is an infrastructure. The urban infrastructure is already there. The urban culture is already part of the culture. But the cities don't exist. And of course, it's easier to rebuild something when the basic groundwork is already there. This is why, for example, the Marshall Plan in Europe after World War II was so successful. Because rebuilding a place like Germany, which had a long history of very flourishing infrastructure and urban culture and industry, it was easy to go back and rebuild these things. Now, when this was transplanted to other areas, places that had never had such a culture, it doesn't work as well. So the Muslims definitely have something to build on, and they do. Next, if we move to the center of the empire we have what were formerly Byzantine territories. Well, the Byzantine Empire had survived in better shape. So Syria and the Egyptian coast, these become the new major urban areas, really the first urban areas of the Umayyad state. 
And then to the east, we have Persia. Now, Persia has fared much better during the barbarian invasions. So when it eventually falls to the Muslims, they get a well-developed infrastructure, transportation network, and economy, and monetary system that comes with it. Now, what's very important here, though, is we're talking about three separate empires in various states of repair. But by putting them all under one central control, they become connected into one large network. So we have a network which stretches from the fringes of Western Europe to Persia. Well, we've talked in previous episodes, particularly on the conquests, about how the Arabs tended to establish new cities as military garrisons rather than going into the old cities, except in Syria, places like Kufa in Iraq. Later, Cairo in Egypt is built the same way. But it's important to remember that these new cities were being built in areas that already had an urban culture, already had transportation networks, and very often they were built close to former cities, old cities. So we can really say to an extent that the Muslims are adopting the urban infrastructure that was already there. For example, in Iraq, there was a long tradition of planned irrigation systems and water transport routes and land transportation routes going back to ancient Mesopotamia. So when they built a new town like Kufa and then eventually built Baghdad, they could connect into existing water and land routes. So it wasn't like you were building a culture out in the middle of nowhere. And by the way, this is why we find so many Arab cities today are built next to ancient sites that had long been forgotten. For example, Tunis is next to ancient Carthage, which was ruins. Cairo was built next to the ancient fortress of Babylon and eventually absorbs it and eventually absorbs the ancient city of Giza with the pyramids. But because the Islamic Empire was centrally located, it could make connections between major trading partners and markets that had not been connected before. So the Persian trade routes that they acquired were already connected to India and China through the very famous Silk Road. To the north, they connected to Slavic areas and all the way up into Scandinavia via the Russian river trade. And they were connected to the Byzantine Empire and what was left of Western Europe. And they may officially have been enemies with the Byzantines, but we know trade goes wherever you can make a buck, and so the trade was very active. But the conquest of North Africa brought connections to a new area which would be very important, and that was Sub-Saharan Africa, specifically the Gold Coast of Western Africa, which we'll discuss a bit later. Now, as you know, cities typically spring up in strategic junctions of roads and or rivers, where they not only serve as commercial hubs and transportation hubs, but if necessary, they can block those trade routes and transportation routes so no one else can get their goods past them. Well, even though much of the Muslim empire was desert, particularly the Sahara Desert, the situation was still the same, although it might not seem so when you look at a map. A desert just looks like all blank land. But in the desert, the oases are the key stopping points in desert travel. Without oases, you're not going to get across a major desert like the Sahara. So you build a city at the oases in southern Morocco, southern Algeria, like Marrakesh, for example, 
These become, again, key junctions that control the trade. Well, now it becomes clear why the Umayyad Caliph, Abdul Malik, was so keen to standardize the monetary and bureaucratic systems in this empire. It's not just that he wanted to exert control and let everyone know that he was the Caliph, but he wanted to increase the functionality. You had a transportation network. Now you wanted to get it all operating on the same systems so that it could work together. It's just like when you have a bunch of computers. When the first computers were networked, they had to be able to speak the same language, use the same operating systems, or it was no sense in linking them together. Well, remember, Abdul Malik introduced Muslim coinage. He made the Arabic language the standard language of the empire, and eventually he replaced local officials with his own officials, his own bureaucratic system, and then subsequently Islamic law becomes the law of all this area. So the idea was things that were being traded through the Muslim empire, no matter where they were coming from, were going to be controlled by this system. So products could be coming from the Indian Ocean, they could be coming from China, from Sub-Saharan Africa, they could be going out to Western Europe, Byzantium, up to current-day Russia. But when they did, they had to be passed through and regulated by a Muslim Arabic system, meaning Muslim money, Muslim weights and measure, Muslim law. economic system is the money itself. Under the Roman Empire, there had been a very active, a very elaborate system of coinage. They had gold, silver, bronze coins. They circulated throughout the empire. But the barbarian invasions that brought about the fall of Rome disrupted this. Now, the barbarians were definitely interested in this gold. They collected it. They accumulated it. But they weren't mining gold. They weren't minting it. They weren't putting coins into circulation. So this vast wealth out there would eventually become lost. By the time the Muslim empire arose, Europe was suffering from a major lack of gold. And this, again, this is just an example of how problems compound one another. We know this in our lives. When something goes wrong, it causes other things to go wrong. And when something goes right, it has all sorts of good repercussions. So the Roman Empire depended on a very elaborate, specialized economic system. Now, as a non-economist, I like to think of this in terms of biology. You know, a single-celled organism like a bacterium well, it can do everything it needs to do to survive. It can move, it can produce energy, it can take in food, it can reproduce. It does everything it needs to survive, but on a very limited scale. This is why you don't see bacterium producing the Sistine Chapel or great works of art. Probably something you've never wondered about. Now, you take billions of these cells and give them specialized functions and you get something like a human body. And of course a human can do a lot more elaborate things than just a single-celled organism. You bring a lot of humans together, you give them specialized functions within a society, and that society can produce a whole lot more. The weakness though, if you take one organ out of that human, take the heart or the liver or the brain, or even take 
a piece of the heart out of a human, the whole thing is going to collapse. And that's what happens with the Roman system. Once the system stops working as a whole, once it becomes disrupted, places that had maybe a single crop economy or depended on one thing now become isolated. So we see the communities that rise up in basically Western Europe, they become very limited in what they can do. And the trading circles, the networks that they have get smaller and smaller and smaller, and they become more isolated. So by the time the Roman Empire fell, there was a major shortage of gold. Silver was the main currency in Europe, but this was of very poor quality. Again, they didn't really have the ability to do a lot of refining. And one thing we tend to forget nowadays, of course, we don't have a gold standard. Our money is just essentially numbers on a spreadsheet. But back in the old days, the precious metal was actually the value itself. It wasn't just that someone minted a coin. It was that coin represented a certain amount of gold or silver. Well, if you had low-quality silver, then your, your coins weren't worth as much. And if the quality of your silver was very inconsistent, people didn't really want your coins because they couldn't tell how much they were worth. The Byzantine Empire in the center at one time had a large supply of gold. But with the conquest on both sides, the Muslims on the south, the barbarians on the north, their supplies are being cut off gradually. To make it worse, the gold that was there was being hoarded by the church, which was exempt from paying any tax. And if we go to the far west, to Persia, they actually had a very active monetary system. Remember, they were doing much better. They used silver as their currency. But they ended up accumulating large supplies of precious metals and jewels. And the reason was, at one time, there was a lot of Roman gold and silver that was left behind in the barbarian invasions. This becomes traded. No new money is being produced. So what is happening is the wealth of the West, of Europe, is moving to the East, and it's not being replaced. So it eventually ends up in Persia and in India, and they start accumulating very large quantities of wealth. Well, eventually, Persia falls under the control of the Muslims. So they are getting a very large supply of gold and silver when they take over. But this was boosted by several outside sources. For one, there were many gold mines throughout the empire, Egypt, Sudan, Yemen, and India. And unlike Western Europe, uh, the Muslims have a very active and tightly controlled economy, so they're going to go out and exploit these. Another factor, which we might not think would make a huge difference, but it actually did, was the discovery and the excavation of the pharaonic tombs in Egypt, which contained incredible amounts of wealth. Now, the one we have as a modern example, of course, is the discovery of the tomb of King Tutankhamun. And the wealth from that tomb is on display in the museum in Cairo, and it's amazing. And as often pointed out, King Tut was a boy king. He was relatively insignificant, but the amount of gold and jewels that were found in his tomb was really amazing. So when we compare this to the great pharaohs, like Ramses and Khufu, who built the Great Pyramid, we are talking incredible amounts of gold and wealth. And when we think about the Egyptian empire, you know, they built some of the greatest monuments in the world, 
But they didn't just build these to be symbols of their power. These were tombs. Really, the focus of Egyptian religion in Egyptian society was sending off the king and the nobles with as much glory and wealth as you could. So when you excavated major tombs, there was an incredible amount of gold that was found. So much, though, that it created inflation throughout the Muslim empire and really changed the monetary system. But the most important source was the gold mining in Western Africa, which was one of the richest areas in the world. It's known today as the Gold Coast. For example, when this area became converted to Islam, in the Malian chief, Mansa Musa, traveled on the Hajj, as a good Muslim should do, he passed through North Africa and much of the empire. People were amazed. We have historical records of people uh, just amazed at the amounts of gold he and his entourage wore. We've seen pictures today of people with dozen gold necklaces on top of each other. This is the kind of gold that they had. Now, of course, there had always been gold in West Africa, but if that region is not connected to the outside, I mean, of course, you can't, you can't eat gold. What do you do with it? You make decorations out of it. And we have to always remember, although we think of gold as being very valuable and having a certain value, the only value a precious metal has is how rare it is. So if you're living in a society like the Mali Empire at the time where there's a lot of gold, it is not worth as much. Now you connect that to essentially this world international trading network, which is what the Muslim Empire is. You plug that in, that gold is now connected to everything. This becomes a major change in the monetary supply. Well, we know that Earlier, the Rashidun caliphs, Umar and Ali, had attempted to mint their own currency for the Muslim state. But at that time, the Muslim state was still small, and the amount of gold they controlled was fairly modest. But by the time of the Umayyad caliph Abdul Malik, and this is about the turn of the 8th century, the Muslim control and wealth was such that he could decree a new monetary system. We've already mentioned the fact that he minted his own coins. But they standardized the different gold and silver systems into one. Remember, some empires had used gold, some had used silver, and they all had their own different currency systems. And just like today, you had to deal with exchange rates. Well, he made one system. They had the gold dinar, which was equal to 20 silver dirhams. Now, these two words are still in use today for different currencies in various Arab states. But they had a very specific meaning. This has a huge impact because this trading empire is so huge and it stretches beyond its borders. Everybody is trading with this Muslim empire. Whether you are in India or you're in southern France, you know exactly what that coin is worth. Not only was the quantity of Muslim gold vastly increased, but their technical skill in refining and minting was far beyond what Europe had. They are the leaders in metallurgy and metal science, and so they're producing high-quality gold. They're also so large that basically their gold coins are the only ones that are worth having. 
soon anybody who has non-Muslim coins has no choice but to turn these in and have them melted down. I mean, if you've got some low-quality silver from Western Europe, nobody wants to trade that. Just like today, the dollar is the international currency. Dollars are good everywhere. The dollar has a value in every country. Well, Abdul Malik's coins become like this. So control over the monetary system combined with geographic control over the trade routes gave the Muslim empire economic reach well beyond its borders. But the constant, rapid influx of new gold had another effect. And this, of course, is inflation. Well, inflation can have a lot of good effects and bad effects. We tend to think of it as bad when it's out of control. But if you're the one in control of it, it can be good. Just like in any economy today, an increase in the amount of currency in circulation decreases the value of what's already there. Remember, gold is only valuable because it's rare. As it becomes less rare, it's less valuable. Well, as more and more gold is entering the system, the relative value of the dinars are going down over time. The purchasing power goes down. Well, one of the oldest economic laws says if your money is decreasing in value over time you invest it if it's increasing in value you save it and that's essentially what the Byzantine church was doing when they were hoarding money gold was becoming more and more rare so if you have it you're gonna hold on to it it's gonna be worth more in a few years but if it's decreasing in value there's no sense in holding on to it so what you wanna do is invest it turn that gold into something tangible so you invest it wherever you can. And this is where we see tremendous growth in architecture, in building projects, but investment in science, in research, in the arts, because if you have this money, you have to put it into something that's gonna have long-term value. Part of this investment goes into improving methods of production. Even though we've talked about the urban infrastructure and it was very important, the majority of citizens in this empire still worked in the agricultural sector. But with the advances in science like botany for growing things, engineering for irrigation, and the demand from these large cities for more and more products, they want a higher standard of living, well, agricultural production had to get more efficient. By one estimate, Egyptian farmers produced four times as much output per acre as European farmers did during the 800s. And if we tend to think about which area has better agricultural land, well, you would think that France or Germany has better agricultural land than Egypt, which is mostly desert. Well, this continuing influx of gold into the empire would upset the balance of power. As you would expect, it led to rapid inflation and a widening gap between the rich and poor. Unfortunately, that is not just a problem for today. It's been that way forever. Yes, there's accumulation of wealth, but it's not even, and it doesn't go to everybody. The accumulation of wealth favored the cities. That's where trading was going on, and that led to increasing urbanization of the empire. I mean, basically, if you wanted to make money, you, you had to go to a city. Now this excess gold ended up with merchants who could use it to trade. So the merchant class becomes very wealthy and powerful at this time. And this also led to large markets. And as anyone who's traveled to the Middle East today knows, the center of any city, the hub of activity is the market or the souk. 
And there are some huge public markets, the Khan al-Khalili in Cairo, for example. This is the center of activity in the city. Well, the merchant class would also end up with a lot of disposable income. So they invested heavily in the cities. They built agricultural works, they built mosques, they built charitable institutions, they built hospitals, and they sponsored the arts, they sponsored the sciences. Powerful merchants would host these gatherings in their homes where they would bring in poets, musicians, philosophers. I mean, if you're a professional philosopher, you don't really produce anything monetary, you depend on a patron pay you. As is usually the case when a lot of money is in circulation in high volume, people can achieve status quickly based on their entrepreneurial skill or just plain dumb luck. And so people rise very quickly and some fall. Powerful merchant families emerge who don't have a lineage to anyone important. They don't have a noble family background and ancestors to be proud of, but they become important and they have a lot of money. And we see similar things happening during the industrial age, particularly in America during what we call the Gilded Age, people who came from very humble origins, uh, like the Carnegies, for example. These people accumulated tremendous amounts of money. They became very rich, but they always felt this social inferiority with the long-standing noble families of Europe who by that time were losing money. So they did things to show their worth. This is why they built places like Carnegie Hall and they established universities. They did all this philanthropic work to show that they belonged in this upper class. Well, the same thing is going on in Baghdad and the major cities of the Muslim empire. Also, with so much upward mobility, many of the people who will rise to the top are minorities, Jews and Christians. If you're good and you can run an effective business, you can make your way to the top. Now, merchants, they had little traditional power. They didn't have a power base to start with. So they had to do something to turn that money into power and to protect themselves. So we see the rise of guilds. Now, a guild is somewhat like a trade union today, but a guild is a closed society that has tremendous power over the market. They control who can be initiated into the profession, how you advance in the profession, who gets to stay in there, and the rules you have to follow. You can't just decide that you want to be a goldsmith or an engineer. It's not like today where you just apply to a university. and You had to have someone take you on and teach you the trade. You became an apprentice to a master. Eventually, you became a master craftsman of your own. But you were expected to be part of this group that set the rules for the market. The leaders of guilds could exert tremendous power in society. For one thing, they could cut off the supply of their goods if they wanted to. They could change the prices. They could favor one person over another. And it's interesting, even today, in places in the Middle East which do not have real democracy, trade unions are still very important. During the Mubarak regime in Egypt, for example, which was a, a dictatorship, the presidential elections were a complete farce, Western observers would watch very closely union elections. The pharmacist union, for example, was very powerful. The engineers union was very powerful. Who got elected to that union was really more suspenseful 
and then who got elected president because you knew who was going to be elected president. So the expanding nature of Muslim trade led to the growth of another class of businessmen. This is known in Arabic as the Mudarib. And this is essentially an entrepreneurial trader who was exploiting these transportation links with the outside. Essentially what would happen is a rich investor would loan either goods or money to a Mudarib who would take it someplace, trade it, and the Mudarab would have a contract to, of course, pay back the principal and a certain amount of profit. All the rest of the profit they could keep for themselves. Well, this sounds a lot like venture capital, and that's essentially what it is. You load up some sugar from Persia, take it to Byzantium, sell it for a profit, pay back what you promised, and keep the rest. Well, both parties profit. The Mudarab makes money and the person who stays in one place and basically invests in these transactions is making a lot of money without actually going out and selling anything themselves. Well, this encourages merchants to push out further and further into riskier areas, both economically and physically. I mean, how are you going to really make a lot of money in this? You have to take a product to some place where they haven't seen it before. You have to go to a new market with something like sugar or a spice they've never seen before or a certain craft that they've never seen, and you're going to get a lot more money for it. And in fact, the future growth of Islam, what are today the largest Muslim populations in the world, were not conquered by force. They came after the period of the conquest, but they came through trade. Well, this leads to further expansion of the Muslim culture, even if it's not the Muslim empire. Once it becomes clear that a person can make a fortune shipping and trading goods into and out of the Muslim empire, more and more ports are going to develop connected to this empire. For example, along the Indian Ocean, places like Somalia, Mogadishu becomes very important. Aden and Yemen, these become very important Indian Ocean trading points. Well, managing the shipments coming in and out of a place like this could make someone very rich. And so we begin to see Arabic-speaking merchants move to these places. But this only works if there's a system in place that would protect the merchants and regulate trade. You don't want to take your money and go move to a place that is like the Wild West where you could lose it all. You want to be protected. So a standardized monetary system, a standardized price system, a common language, these all help, but also Islamic law that deals with things like economic transactions. This is going to govern how things go on. So the Muslim empire had all these things in one neat package. So when a place like Mogadishu converts to Islam, it can really plug into this network as a full partner. Now, I'm not trying to put down the religious aspect of this and say that people converted for economic reasons. No, I mean they converted for religious reasons, but you also wanted to adopt all of the things that go with it, all the cultural, political, and economic things that came with Islam, this became very lucrative. And so we're seeing the spread of Islam, not just the religion, but the culture, the Arabic language, Islamic law, into places that are not being actually conquered and controlled by a Muslim empire. 
and yet another class is going to rise to be very important and this is banking with this much money in circulation banking and credit becomes incredibly important and some of the leading bankers of this time are the Jews and also some Christians particularly the Armenians one of the reason that minorities become very influential as bankers is because they already have networks amongst themselves in different cities so the Jewish population has connections maybe family connections to Jews in other cities well these can lead to financial connections communications networks that support banks. we even see instances of the rulers and the caliphs borrowing huge sums of money from the bankers and yes that sounds a little bit strange to us when we read fairy tales like the thousand and one nights we think of the caliph being absolute in his power owning everything in the kingdom but the reality is bankers merchants they have a lot of power so even the caliph has to borrow money now he has a lot of influence he can get good credit but he still has to get the money and so the banker has a lot of influence now you may be saying to yourself this sounds a lot like capitalism and this is one of the big debates in economic history was the abbasid empire capitalist well they're obviously not completely capitalist in the th sense we think of today but this is something that is argued among historians and it really depends on what your definition is but we're certainly seeing a lot more aspects of what looks like modern capitalism in this empire than what we're seeing in feudal Europe so we have the rise of a middle class we have a lot of commerce going on. We have the beginnings of some type of capitalism. We're seeing the sponsorship of large academic institutions, educational institutions, scientific research, and so forth. What we're seeing here is what looks like, in many ways, a modern society to us. And it's hugely different from what's going on in Europe at the time. Well, this sounds wonderful so far, but of course not everybody is a winner in this system. There are plenty of losers, including the traditional elites, the rural and the agricultural sectors of society, and of course the common laborer. In fact, most people are not the merchant class, they're not the investor class. And the money that they have is being steadily devalued by the increase in gold. I mean, it's something similar to what we see with the boom in Wall Street. It benefits a very few people. Well, rural landholders lose a lot of their power and as always common unskilled labor suffers. So more people have to move to cities looking for work under unfavorable conditions. One advantage of this though is that there are professions, growing and expanding professions for them to get into. But many peasants are not able to do this so peasant revolts do become very common throughout the empire and it's something that's a constant threat and many of these revolts will take on a religious character there's a huge number of sects or maybe we would say cults many have messianic type leaders that spring up throughout the region and lead rebellions many of these are crushed but a lot of these continue on into the future and even up to the present day. Another unfortunate aspect of this economy is the trade in slaves. 
This becomes one of the most bustling sectors of the Muslim economy, particularly because Islam forbids using fellow Muslims as slaves, so most of these have to be imported from outside, particularly uh, coming from the Slavic areas in Russia and coming from Central Asia and slaves coming up from Sub-Saharan Africa. And of course, it leads to misery for millions of people. interconnected network of urban centers strategically located at the intersection of several climatic regions, this spawned a lot of benefits. The first is economies of scale. Let's take uh, an isolated village, say. It can't generate enough demand to produce a lot of specialized crops and products, even if the climate will allow it. But when goods can be passed along a large empire fairly rapidly, at least quickly enough that they don't spoil, then that generates enough demand to support a wide variety of crops, of textiles, of manufactured goods, and so on. The Muslim world at this time would be responsible for introducing and transplanting a large number of economic products, many of which have changed the economies of countries even today. The Muslim Empire, for example, had an almost monopoly on precious gemstones. Many of the other sources in the Americas and Southern Africa wouldn't be discovered until centuries later. Now, obviously, an isolated community couldn't live on emeralds and rubies. You can't eat them. But you connect that to a major trading network, and you can parlay those into great abundance, and they do. At the same time, an area can afford to specialize in a few specific items, and by doing that, they can do it more efficiently and with greater production. So, example, the city of Sfax in Tunisia becomes a major port for the shipping of olive oil. Alexandria becomes a place that exports sugar. Damascus is famous for its steel, especially its swords. And other individual cities give their names to a particular style of carpet or textile that they produce, like a Shiraz or a Bukhara. Secondly, we see that whatever can grow in the Middle East will be transplanted there. These large urban centers need a tremendous variety of foods. So previously, this region had only supported a limited range of crops, and those were particularly the ones that are suited to dry climates. But with the growth of irrigation systems from all this engineering expertise, they can introduce some water-intensive crops like rice, cotton, and sugarcane. So around the cities, there grow up these very large agricultural suburbs. These produce surpluses that can then be exported to other regions. Prime example is grain. North Africa had been the breadbasket of the Roman Empire, and it continues to produce. Egypt continues to produce tremendous amounts of grain that can be exported throughout the empire and beyond. But now a lot of new crops can be introduced, and some of these are famous today. When we think of cotton, probably the best cotton in the world comes from Egypt, but actually Cotton was introduced from India during the early Muslim period. Previously, Egypt didn't have it. 
Actually, Egypt had been a major center for the production of a much rougher and less pleasant textile, that is flax. But they were able to replace this with cotton. And as we discussed in the episode on Sufism, actually the shift to cotton garments is one of the major innovations in human history. Think of the camel. The camel is found throughout the Middle East today. You can find them in Morocco, Algeria, Egypt. Actually, the camel came from a very limited area in Central Arabia, and its use spread with the coming of Islam. Now, horses were tremendously valuable and extremely prized. But with the expansion of the empire, the Muslims acquired various different types of horses with different strengths. They interbred these to make very specialized breeds, which are now famous. For example, we think of the Arabian horse as a racing horse. But from Central Asia, there came war horses that were used by Turks and other nomads that were very good for cavalry fighting. Of course, China had dominated the silk trade, and they're said to have forbid the exporting of silkworms, because that was the secret. You needed the worms. Well, in a story that may or may not be a legend, it's said that a Muslim traveler smuggled out worms inside a hollow cane. Well, however it actually happened, silk production did move to the Middle East, and it flourished in Syria and Tunisia, among other places. Well, that's great. But what can't be grown internally could be imported. For example, the Muslim Empire had very few forests and was very weak when it came to wood. But they had a tremendous need for wood, not only for building, but also for many of the crafts and industries they had required fire for, like, smelting. And so they had to burn a lot of wood. And, very importantly, for shipbuilding. There was a great struggle going on at the time between the Muslims and the Byzantine Empire for control of the Mediterranean. Now, wood is essential for shipbuilding, particularly long timbers that could only come for very tall trees. Now, these were easy to find in northern Europe, but they had to pass through Mediterranean ports, particularly Venice. Well, the Byzantine Empire actually prohibited trade in wood with the Muslim Empire because they wanted to shut them down so they couldn't build warships. Well, if this embargo had worked, it might have shut down Muslim sea power. But Venice was a trading city, and the Islamic world had a wealth of goods that the Venetians wanted, so they ignored the rule and traded the timbers to the Muslim world, and they would eventually take over important areas like the island of Sicily. Another weakness was certain metals. The one metal that the Muslim Empire had in abundance was copper, but they needed a lot of other metals. These were important particularly for weapons. Despite the lack of metal, Damascus steel would become famous. And in fact, the idea of a Damascus sword is a famous name for one of the finest swords in the world. How could that happen in an area that didn't have any iron of its own? Well, the raw iron actually came from eastern Africa. The most advanced smelting techniques for turning it into steel were found in India. So, the raw iron would be imported into India where it would be turned into steel. From there it would go to Syria where expert craftsmen would produce these top quality weapons. So what is known as a Damascus sword is actually an African, Indian, 
and Syrian sword. Similar example would be Damask, which is a famous silk fabric, of course named after the city of Damascus. Well, originally Damascus didn't produce any silk, but because the trade in silk was imported from China, they were able to do this. So we can see here, which is always the case in economics, wealth facilitates more wealth, and lack puts you further and further into debt. Having great infrastructure of trade and transport networks enabled the Muslim world to exploit its advantages. But another aspect of this is it enabled this empire to hide its weaknesses. So when successive waves of invasions begin to disrupt this network, the negative effects will ripple. The central location of the Muslim empire is a big plus for Muslim dominance of the economic system, but it also makes the area a target. And those transportation networks, which are so great at facilitating quick trade, they became great routes for invaders, particularly from Central Asia. When Western Europe eventually develops its own elaborate trade networks, its geographic position becomes boon for it. So although the Mongols do invade Europe and they make it into Eastern Europe, they never get as far as Western Europe and they can't wreak the destruction and devastation that they do on the Middle East. But we cannot blame just the invasions for the eventual decline of this economic system. Yes, that was a big factor. But great prosperity depended on the centralization of a strong empire and strong central control. The same divisive factors that are going to lead to the breakup of the political power of the Muslim world are also going to disrupt its trade networks. The rise of the Turkish military elites in the empire, the battling for the caliphate between different factions, the splintering of religious sects and factions, all these things that are eventually going to bring down the central political authority and splinter this caliphate into what are effectively uh, a number of largely independent states is also going to disrupt the economic network. And we're going to see Europe become ever more strong. And the real killer blow is going to come when the world's oceans become highways for trade. When places like England and Spain, which before had been isolated, now become on the front lines of trade, and they were able to bring back quantities of wealth from the Americas that dwarf what was even present in the Middle East at that time, this is when the Middle Eastern economic system is really going to go into decline. But for hundreds of years, this is really the engine of economic power, and this complements the political, military, legal, scientific, religious power of this empire. And it's just one more factor for its growth and the elaborate nature of its culture. Well, I hope we've given you some idea of the economy of the Muslim world. Please stay with us as we talk about the development of this empire, its growth, and unfortunately, its eventual decline. Thank you again for all your kind attention. Thank you for your kind ratings. And we hope to see you again in the future. Shukran jazilin wa ma'asalamah.